Have you ever done something that you didn't want to do? A couple of months ago, I went up to my wife, Sarah, and I said, Sarah, I think we should go on a marriage getaway. We'll book a cool place. We'll eat some good food. We'll lounge by the pool. We'll have a great time just relaxing the two of us on a marriage getaway. And my wife, Sarah, responded. She says, I got a better idea. Let's turn it into a marriage retreat. She said, I had just heard about this organization, Rev Wellness, that, that combines working out with scripture and marriage encouragement. She said, what if we do a marriage retreat where we download these videos that help us in our marriage and then we can do workouts together and quickly what I thought was gonna be a paradise experience was aiming up to become a punishment for me. I'm thinking, wait, no, no, I just wanted to get away and hang out with you and now I'm gonna be working out. This is a nightmare but you guys, it actually turned out better than I thought it would be. And in fact, one of the uh, marriage experts that was sharing at this uh, marriage online retreat said this. He said, the church should be the safest place to hurt out loud. And I thought, that's beautiful. That's, that's purpose church. That The church is the safest place to hurt out loud. It's also the safest place to ask questions out loud. It's the safest place to wrestle with difficult topics within the Bible out loud. You see, this all began for me, this marriage retreat began with me doing something that I initially didn't want to do. And can I confess to you, can I be vulnerable with you for a minute? I'm at one of those places again today. That right now I'm going to do something that honestly I don't want to do. Here's why. The question we're talking about today is how should we best understand God's Old Testament violence? You know, this series has been absolutely amazing. But when it came to this question, there was a part of me that wanted to avoid it. There was part of me that was nervous about how would we address difficult passages like, like this one in, in 1 Samuel. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. What does God have against the donkeys here? I mean, I, I, I read passages like this and thought, man, I don't want to talk about this. But you know what? At Purpose Church, we don't avoid difficult Bible verses. We don't skirt around difficult topics that we actually believe God wants to speak to us even through those passages that are difficult to understand. It's why throughout this whole series, Pastor Glenn has reminded us over and over again, never read a Bible verse out of context. Always understand where it's coming from. He, he reminded us that, you know, God, when we meet him, we have a deep and meaningful experience. But then oftentimes what happens is something comes along that challenges our faith and it's posed as if it's deeper, as if it's more significant than what we experienced in Christ in our salvation. And what we're trying to do in this series for the last six weeks is go to the deepest end. To say, okay, how can we really address 
face on these difficult passages within the Bible and understand what's actually happening. And I I hope this whole series has been helpful for you. I hope that it's given you more confidence and courage about the Bible and about your faith and how to answer really difficult questions. But I also hope that that it's, it's inspired you to the next time you see something on social media or a friend asks a question or someone makes a claim against Christianity, that instead of buying it wholesale right there from the get-go, that you would go, you know what? I wonder if there's more to the story. I want to do a deeper dive into the deepest end. Now today, as we talk about God's Old Testament violence, the truth is this message might not be suitable for all ages. And in fact, some of our younger children, this could be a challenging message for them to understand. And so parents, we just wanted to give you that warning as we begin. We think it's a very important topic for us to unpack and understand together. But for our littlest ones who are watching, this one might be a little bit difficult. So I wanted to give you that warning. Well, hey, as we jump into our final message in how not to read the Bible, let's watch this together. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old. That's Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. That's in the Bible. And you know how you see artwork of Noah's Ark on the walls in almost every church nursery. Yes, there's cute animals and boats and rainbows, but for some reason, our favorite nursery theme always seems to emit the myriad of drowned bodies floating on the floodwaters God sent. And even then, that's the tame stuff. The Bible talks about human sacrifice, bloody deaths, decapitations, fingers, feet, and hands being cut off, eyes gouged out, impalements, multiple suicides, and thousands and thousands of animals being killed. Psalm 137.9 says, Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, we see God saying, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants. Is this all for real? Is God genocidal? Does he really like dashing babies against rocks? Why does the Old Testament God seem so different than the New Testament Jesus? How do we make sense of these Bible verses that are so brutally violent? When it comes to God's Old Testament violence, maybe you've seen memes that look something like this. The bloody Bible, it'll quote a passage, everyone that is found shall be thrust through and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. What do we do with verses like this? In fact, it's verses like this taken out of context. I can't emphasize that enough, taken out of context that have led atheists like Richard 
Dawkins to write his book, The God Delusion. In it, he says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. My goodness, I think I mispronounced half of those words and try to say that 10 times, but that is quite a description for God. Is that accurate? Is that true? Is that a fair description of God? Now, before we look at some of these difficult passages, I want to just identify that there's two ways to explain the violence that honestly aren't satisfying. The, The very first way that we oftentimes quickly try to explain away the violence of the Old Testament, Old Testament is what I'll call the no apology approach. Essentially, it says God did it. He is God and he can do anything he wants, including killing people. Now it's true. God is God and God can do whatever God wants. But over and over again throughout the Bible, when people uh, have questions about God or they don't like a decision he made, I'm thinking specifically maybe King David, that he's constantly in his writings and, and what's being told to us about him is that he will go to God with his questions when he doesn't understand. And God seems to be okay with that. The second approach that isn't satisfying is the Bible is wrong approach. This essentially says God didn't command the violence or do any of it. The scriptures have the stories in it, but the Israelites and those who wrote the stories were mistaken. Now this is an easy out, but it's really not a good one. You know, it reminds me of, you know, this was kind of first uh, popularized by Marcion, the, the church leader from the second century. He lived around the year 140 AD in modern day Turkey. And in fact, he took so much uh, Uh, He was so frustrated and so concerned about the violence in the Old Testament, even some of it in the New Testament, that that he basically concluded the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. And he actually began to edit the Bible, edit the the stories to take out all of the violence. But this, this ultimately isn't helpful either. It's why Dan Kimball says, once you abandon the belief that God oversaw and inspired every single line of the Bible. It brings everything the Bible says into question. We no longer have any way of knowing what God said or didn't say. So neither of these approaches is actually helpful. And when we talk about violence in the Bible, we got to identify that there's really two forms, two kinds of violence in the Bible. The first is violence attributed to humans. Dan Kimball says this, some parts of the Bible really should have an NC-17 rating. The evil actions of human beings are portrayed throughout the Bible, sometimes in graphic detail. And these activities are condemned by God. But it's very important to remember that just because something evil is mentioned in the Bible does not mean that God approves of the action or that the Bible is positive about that behavior. Many of the violent acts in the Bible are the result of evil human choices and decisions. But then there are those parts of the Bible. There are those parts of the Bible, number two, where the violence is attributed to God where it's clear that God commands it. 
that, that God is the one who initiated it. And, and essentially, this, this opens up three questions about violence in the Bible that we've got to address today. The first question is, why does the Old Testament God seem so different from the New Testament Jesus? Why did God command Israel to kill people groups in the Old Testament? And what about the babies? Does God really like dashing babies against the rocks? We need to address each one of these questions. But before we go there, I want to remind you of something or maybe tell you something for the first time. That in the Old and New Testaments, God is described as being slow to anger, not slow to love. And maybe, can we just have a pastoral moment for a minute? Maybe some of you right now, you're convinced that God is quick to anger and there'd be no way for you to ever receive his love. I want you to know consistent throughout the Bible, the character and the nature of God is described as one who is slow to anger, very, very patient with us. And yet he is not slow to love, he is quick to love. That the God of the universe, the God of the Bible is quick in his love towards you and I and slow in his anger. And sometimes if you take some of these isolated verses out of context about God's violence, you could begin to conclude all kinds of bad things about God, untrue things about God. A couple years ago, it was Christmas time and we were beginning to uh, prepare for some Christmas parties at our house. And so we decided to get our carpets cleaned in our house. And, and so we found somebody online who had good reviews. And, and, you know, I mean, we have four kids, so they're dumping grape juice and smashing goldfish and doing all kinds of things in the carpet. So they needed a deep cleaning. So we called this person and scheduled them to come to our house at six o'clock one night. Well, I called my wife early in that day and said, how about I take us all out as a family? We all go to Shakey's Pizza, which I love Shakey's Pizza. We'll have the mojo potatoes. We'll have the pizza. We'll have the hot wings. It'll be an amazing time while the cleaners are cleaning our carpets. And we all decided as a family, this was going to be great. And so I knew this early enough in the day. So I didn't eat any lunch. I mean, maybe I had a salad based on my figure. You're like, yeah, you don't eat a lot of salad. I didn't eat a lot of salad. So I had maybe this little bit of salad because I was excited for or the Shakey's pizza dinner. So I arrive at my home at six o'clock. I'm absolutely starving and we're waiting for the guy to arrive to clean the carpets. Well, six turns to 6.30, 6.30 turns to 7.30, 7.30 turns to eight o'clock. The guy doesn't show up until eight o'clock. And I just gotta be honest with you. I was not my best pastoral Christian self. I was hangry. I was ready to get out of the house. I was frustrated. I was annoyed at this. But my wife, Sarah, is such a better person than me. She starts talking to this guy about Jesus. She starts talking about God and about our church. And so all of a sudden I gotta start smiling because now she's telling him I'm a pastor. And, and we're starting to have this conversation conversation. Turns out this person, his daughter had a similar condition that our daughter Brinley had with her heart. And they had this whole, you know, moment of connecting. I'm like, I just want to get to Shakey's. So we finally get out of the house about eight o'clock. We head to Shakey's, have an amazing time. We come back, we open the door and the carpets are clean. I mean, they have never looked this good before. We walk over to the table where we had left the check for him and it was still there. And there was a little note on it that said, it was great talking with you. Would you use this money that you were going to pay me and instead bless somebody at your church? 
And immediately I felt so guilty because I had judged this guy. I don't even know what the reason was. He probably had a really great reason for why he was late. Now, if I only told that first part of the story of this guy showing up late, you would conclude all kinds of things about his character. But really, who he was was put on display in his generosity. And I hope to do the same thing here. That as we look at these stories in context, what was going on, that we'll have a better understanding of the character of God and what to do with the violence in the Old Testament. Well, let's start with our first question. Why does the Old Testament God seem so different from the New Testament Jesus? This oftentimes gets posed that people go, well, the God of the Old Testament just seems really crazy and angry and violent like all the time. And then New Testament Jesus, he's like a hippie walking around at coffee shops, chilling with people, like whispering as he's talking. But really, that's not really a fair characterization of either God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. In in fact, Jesus himself spoke about hell and judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. Here's just one example from the Gospel of Matthew. This is how it will be at the end of the age, Jesus says. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was not afraid of talking about hell and talking about the judgment coming to those who are not followers of Jesus. The New Testament also warns harshly against disobeying God. Look at this next passage from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So don't mistake the Old Testament as not addressing some of these difficult topics like the Old Testament does. But then when we come to thinking about God's compassion, it's actually true that God's compassion is evident in the Old and New Testaments. Look at what it says in Psalm chapter 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. That's God's character. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. That is according to the character and the nature of God. He is described throughout the Old Old Testament over and over again as a compassionate God. And did you know Jesus in the gospels, people have studied what, what emotional word most characterizes and describes Jesus or what what emotional word gets used over and over again in the gospels to describe Jesus it's the word compassion that over seven times in the new testament Jesus Jesus identifies as having compassion or others say that about him here here's one great example Jesus called his disciples to him and said I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Second question, and really this is, this is the hardest one of all. This is the one we're going to spend the most time on. This is the one where I'm going to ask you and invite you to lean in as we talk about some really difficult pa- passages, but I hope it's ultimately helpful for you. The second question we're going to look at is this. Why did God command Israel to kill people groups in the Old Testament? Why? 
Well, to, to help us begin this, I was, I was kind of thinking of, of the TV show Cobra Kai, which is kind of based on the, the original movie's Karate Kid. And, and if you know, there's this kind of battle between these two different styles of karate. You have Cobra Kai and then you have Miyagi-Do, and, and it's two different philosophies for how to teach karate. But the motto for the Cobra Kai is strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And today in 2022, many would say, well, those words describe God. That our culture has concluded those words best describe God. To which I would ask you a question though. Is that true? Is that accurate? Is that how God is described? Does that represent who God is? You see, when, when God sent Israel into battles, to engage in war, to kill people that were in the land that he had prepared for them. We sometimes think that, man, God was doing this all throughout the Old Testament, like constantly. But the truth is, God sent Israel into battles, happened during a limited time period. It was a very short time period where God was doing something really intentional. And his purpose behind it there's a few purposes, but, but one of them dates back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God made a promise about something very specific, that he would do something very specific, giving this land to his people. Dan Kimball says this, this land was more than just land. It was the land where God would dwell. It was the land where the city of Jerusalem eventually was established. And in Jerusalem, a temple to worship God was built. Jesus was eventually born in this land and died and rose from the dead in this land for the sins of the world. You see, this particular plot of land that God was going to give to his people, it was very strategic. It, it became a bridge between so many other nations and cultures. So many travelers came in and through this plot of land that God gave to his people, and it became the best, the most opportune, the most strategic place for the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, to literally spread all around the world. So then what do we do with passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20? However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Paul Copen, who's an Old Testament scholar and an apologist, he, he, he says this to help us understand this passage. Phrases like completely destroy, often the Hebrew words harem or ban, which are translated into English as completely destroy, didn't actually mean completely destroy as we think of it today. 
The goal of such battles was for the cities to be emptied and their identities in that place destroyed. In uh, Dan Kimball's book, he provides this table with, with sort of some examples of this. Where on the left side, you have passages where God commanded that, that the areas be completely destroyed using those Hebrew words, harem and bon. And then you have other passages paralleling it next to it, sometimes a few verses or a few chapters later, where it's clear that there were still survivors. Let's look at, at this example, Joshua chapter 10, verse 20. It came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed. Well, then you go to the next part of the verse. And the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities. So there were still survivors. It was God's way of saying we need to empty the cities of the people and of their corrupt views of God, their ideologies, to make way for what God was uniquely doing. But not only was God fulfilling his promise to Israel and providing a land for them, but God was also judging some of these nations who had fallen into such incredible, horrific sin. It's why we see verses like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 16. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods for that will be a snare to you. So number one, God is clearly concerned that the Israelites are going to start to worship the other gods of the neighboring nations. That he's nervous his people are going to be influenced. And he says, don't take any pity. Why? Why would he say that? Well, you see, let's look at the Canaanites for a minute. The Canaanites worshiped the God of Molech. And let me just read to you what Clay Jones, Old Testament scholar, says about Molech. This is who the Canaanites worshipped. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright bullheaded idol with a human body in whose belly a fire was stoked and in whose arms a child was placed to be burnt to death. It was not just unwanted children who were sacrificed. Plutarch, a Greek writer and philosopher from the first century, reported that during Phoenician Canaanite sacrifices, the whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries and wailing should not reach the ears of the people. The Canaanites were sacrificing so many children, so many babies were being burned alive that the screaming and the wailing was so loud that they had to get musicians to play loud enough so that those horrific sounds would not be heard in the rest of the city. You see, the Canaanites, they practiced bestiality. They participated in child prostitution. And so God, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, it's recorded that after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So God isn't saying, Israel, you're perfect. You've got no issues. No, he's saying, this is happening because of judgment because of the wickedness of these nations. Now remember friends, 
God is slow to anger. He's not slow to love, but he's slow to anger. And he had given these people hundreds of years to change, to repent, to turn back to God. In Genesis chapter 15, the promise is made that the land where the Canaanites were would be given over to Israel, but it's over 400 years after that to where God finally enacts his justice. Why? Because he was waiting for the Canaanites to repent. He was waiting for the Canaanites to turn. And friends, some of them did. Look at this recorded for us in Joshua chapter 6 verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. There's those donkeys again. Keep going. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, the prostitute, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Earlier in Joshua, we find out that Rahab, she was aware, as a Canaanite, she was aware of God's faithfulness in providing and rescuing Israel from the slavery of Egypt. She had heard the story of God parting the Red Sea. She knew that God had promised to give this land to Israel and she chose to repent. She chose to turn back to God and God was gracious to her and he spared her. And in fact, Rahab ends up showing up in the genealogy of Jesus, that she's an incredible example to us of the power of repentance, of turning to God and what God can do when we turn to him. But this isn't the only example of someone turning around. Think about the the Ninevites. Uh, James Bruckner, who is an expert in Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, he talks about the Ninevites and how they were known, especially in, in terms of their conquests. And he writes this, records brag of live disembodiment, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. They made parades of heads requiring friends of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so they could be skinned alive. The human skins were then displayed on cavity walls and on poles. They commissioned pictures of their post-battle tortures where piles of heads, hands, and feet, and heads impaled on poles ate to a stake were displayed. They pulled out the tongues and private parts of the live victims and burned the young alive. These Ninevites were not good dudes. They were running far from God, participating in all kinds of evil. But God sent Jonah. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against them, to call them out on their sin. 
And then something unbelievable happened. Something completely unexpected happened. It's recorded for us in Jonah beginning in chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong because Jonah knows those stories. He knows who the Ninevites are. He knows what they have done. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You see, God loves every opportunity to receive us when we repent to welcome us home, all of us. But God wasn't just judging the Canaanites or the Ninevites. He judged his own people. There's a great story in Exodus chapter 32 where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the 10 commandments from God. And meantime, Aaron, as he's leading the Israelites, they throw all of their jewelry into a fire and, and, and then they create a golden calf to worship. And, and Aaron, he's flustered when he's talking to Moses about this. And he says, well, we just dumped all the gold in the fire and it just came out a calf. I mean, it's so unbelievable, the story. But then God, God, if we flip over to the next verse, verse 25. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. You see what he's doing there? He's giving them a second chance. He's giving them an opportunity to repent, to return to him. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And I recognize this, is, this sounds incredibly harsh, but God is trying to protect his people from becoming just like all the other nations who were living awful, evil, messed up, broken lives. Dan Kimball says this, there are times when God acts in judgment leading to death. But the people groups that were judged had received warning after warning. God is patient and compassionate and forgiving, but there is a limit to his patience. He is also just and has promised to uphold the cause of justice and punish those who do wrong, defending those who are innocent. God is not slow to love, but he is slow to anger. And as we see throughout the Bible, God does not express anger, but it is an outflow of his just love and protection, not a vindictive and selfish anger, the type human beings are prone to display. And the last question I want to unpack together is this. What about the babies? Does God really like dashing babies against the rocks? We started our, our uh, sermon with that quote, from the very beginning. And you might assume, okay, that's, that's what God is about. And there's another one that, that you might assume, oh, is, that, is God okay with that? In Psalm 137, it says this, remember Lord what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. 
Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What is going on here? Well, you see, shortly before this psalm was written, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. And one of the Babylonian uh, conquering practices was when they would conquer a nation, they would take its smallest children, throw them up in the air, and they would fall to their death. And so here, Israel, the, the, the Jews, they, they've seen their own children being thrown into the air, dashed against the rocks. They've seen their country destroyed, and they are crying out for poetic justice. Then notice God is not endorsing this, but they are crying out out of their pain and woundedness. And you've got to remember the book of Psalms, it's a great place to go to when you're experiencing the extremes of emotions. Because in the book of Psalms, you'll find deep joy and you'll find deep woundedness and sadness. And yet we today, we live in light of Christ. That when it comes to injustices, or evil around our world. We take our cues from the New Testament, from, from what Paul had to say in Romans chapter 12. Look at, look at what Paul said. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We also, in light of Christ, we have the hope of heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, we get a picture of this. Look, or it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is God's promise to us that even in the face of injustice and evil, this is what we have to hold on to. So what do we do now? Will we follow Jesus's example when it comes to how to engage with the evil or injustices that are happening to us. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus called us to love our enemies. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. How do we emulate our heavenly father? How do we respond to injustices and evil happening around us? The first thing we do is we choose to love. Instead of crying out that their babies would be dashed, we choose to love our enemies. And that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the example of Christ. But then the second thing we do in the face of evil, in the face of injustices, 
in the face of those persecuting us or life being difficult, the second thing we do is we serve the most vulnerable. We serve the most vulnerable. Jesus tells this impactful, incredible story at the end of Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, here's how you combat injustices and violence and evil. You choose in the face of it to serve the most vulnerable. And when you do, Jesus says, you're serving me. You see, friends, it, it's verses like these that have defined us at Purpose Church. We are passionate about foster care and about adoption, about serving the poor and unsheltered in our community, reaching and serving those around the globe, taking care of widows. And together we use our time and our resources and our energy towards initiatives that help everyone everywhere follow Jesus. And this Christmas, we have an unprecedented opportunity to reach more people in our community and around the world than ever before. We have so many Christmas services and outreach opportunities and local events and serving opportunities and global initiatives to participate in as individuals or as a life group or as a family. And so I want to invite you now to scan this QR code or to visit purposechurch.com slash Christmas to sign up to serve and to get information to help you invite your friends and your family to Purpose Church this season. Because we believe God has great things in store for us in this next season. And we want to invite you to be a part of it.